Amen. If you would, please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes 7 will be reading verses 1 to 13. Ecclesiastes 7, picking up in verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and a day of death than a day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as a crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray for the wisdom that can only come from above. Lord, give us wisdom this morning. Help us to receive your word in all humility and reverence. Lord, and we pray that your word would accomplish whatever you have purposed for it to do. May we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think I need to convince you of the fact that that time is precious, that time is valuable, it's a valuable commodity, is precious because, well, we can't buy any of it in order to give ourselves more time. Time comes, time goes. We all have only the 24 hours that we're given each day and nothing more. And while time is certainly precious, and I don't think the Bible would disagree with that, but when I consider the things, the list of things that the Bible considers precious or invaluable, I don't think actually time is on that list. You might also think, well, what about eternal life? Eternal life is a gift of God that comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ, even eternal life, right? It's the concept of time there. It's forever, living forever with God and with Christ. While that is true, Jesus also says in the Gospels that eternal life is to know God. Eternal life isn't so much about time, but more about relationship. But something that does make the list of what is precious and valuable, according to the Scriptures, is wisdom. 
Hence why in many places in the scriptures, especially in the book of Proverbs, you're told to seek after it, to search for it like hidden treasure. For example, Proverbs 3.13 says, says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Job 28, verse 15, says that wisdom cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, and precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. In 7.13, it tells us, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? So if you were here last week, or if you happened to listen to the sermon from last week, we talked about how God created reality. What we have today was created by God, designed by God, or permitted or allowed by God. And there are some things within our lives, within even our personal lives, that we cannot change. There are some things that are fixed. And so then it is up to us to determine, well, according to the Scriptures, how then should we live? And we talked about that. What does it look like to live under God's reality, especially when there are things that we cannot change? And it's a reminder to us of our finiteness. As much as we might desire to change some things, we are not able to change everything. And so that application from last week actually continues into this week. How then do we live? How should we live in God's reality? And for us this morning, I have just one, one point for us to consider, and that is life inside God's reality demands wisdom. We're called to be wise with the life, the life that's been given to us. We're called to be wise with the things that have been entrusted to us. We're called to be wise knowing when there are things that God has fixed that we cannot change. And so if we seek to grow in wisdom, first consider that wisdom, wisdom considers death. If you'd be wise, you would consider death. Verses 1 and 2 says, A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death and the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. So it is not saying that, that to die is better than to be born. It's not saying that we should not celebrate the day of birth. We certainly celebrate the day of birth. But what it's trying to tell us is actually clarified in the first part of that passage. A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death and the day of birth. It's telling us that while we celebrate the day of birth of children, we rejoice, we celebrate, we are glad, but we are not yet able to tell the kind of legacy that this child will leave behind has not made a name for itself yet. We don't know how he or she will live out their life. 
So in that sense, it's sailing us to consider the day of death and the good name that you'll leave behind. This is what it means by considering death, meaning consider the brevity of your life. Consider what kind of legacy you would leave behind if you were, say, to pass away soon. What would people remember about you? It's a call to consider one's life, that it is brief, a consideration of one's name. There may not be a lot that we can change about our lives or in the world that we desire to change, but you can control how you live your life. That you have control over. And how you manage your life, how you conduct your life, what kind of character you display is how you will be remembered. Might you be remembered as a Christian? Or if somebody attended your funeral, but might they be surprised to find out that you were a Christian? That you love the Lord Jesus? That you were in pursuit of the kingdom of Christ? And that the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting? That this... There's a sort of an information that is transferred from this house of mourning to the mind and heart of the person who's in the house of mourning. Again, that information is that they consider the brevity of their life. They consider the fact that, hey, I actually don't live forever. The Lord might call me to himself at any moment. So how then am I living my life today? There's a couple of people I remember. Some of you know this person. Some of you do not because you came after him. But several years ago, the Lord called to himself a dear brother by the name of Gerard Lachance. And if you're here, if you remember Gerard Lachance, you remember some certain things about him. But one of the things that you would probably remember about him is that he was an evangelist. He loved to share the gospel with people. And it was a delight. It was such a joy just to hear him talk about how, this, how he talked, shared the gospel with somebody. And it just came out so naturally. And he wouldn't share these stories just to gloat. But he just shared them because he was rejoicing. And that's the kind of legacy that he's left behind. I think of somebody like Red Crossman, some of you might remember, who has served as a deacon for many years because he was a servant at heart. And that's the kind of legacy that he left behind. That's the kind of name that he left for himself. And this is what this passage is calling us to think about. What kind of name would you leave behind? What kind of legacy would you leave behind for your children? How will you be remembered? And this doesn't happen by accident. Right? We have control over how we live our lives. Psalm 112 tells us, For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He remembered certainly by his loved ones, but more importantly, he will be remembered by the Lord. Remembered forever are the righteous, those who are righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. 
who consider it wise to give their lives to Jesus Christ, who consider it wise to lay down their lives to pursue the kingdom of Christ, now in this life, in the present, for as long as they have their lives. And this, in this sense, is why the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. It's not that you never feast. It's not that you never celebrate. It's not that you never rejoice. I mean, even Jesus himself attended a wedding and celebrated but there's something about the house of feasting and the house of rejoicing that sort of distracts you from the cares of the world, from the things that are causing you distress and anxiety. Sometimes we pursue the house of feasting. Sometimes we pursue those momentous occasions and celebrations as an intentional effort to forget about the things that we don't want to think about. But the house of mourning can sort of reorient us to the things that matter most. It can function as a calibration to the compass of our hearts. If you've been sort of distracted by the cares of the world, if you've been sort of gravitating toward the things that the, that the Ecclesiastes tells us to not give our lives to, which is the pursuit of money and wealth and status and honor in the world and these fleeting pleasures that ultimately do not satisfy when you consider the brevity of your life, it can sort of recalibrate the compass of your heart to get you to focus on the things that actually do matter most. Someone had once said that the name that you leave behind, that the, your name and my name, it both tarrieth behind him on earth and goeth with him into heaven and will crown him with glory on the last day. Your name matters. You should care about the legacy you leave behind. And then one of the things that will determine that kind of legacy that you leave behind is whether or not Christ knows your name. Does Christ know you? When you go into heaven and stand before the judgment seat of God and you behold Jesus Christ, will he know who you are? And if you can confidently say, yes, he will know my name and he will remember me, then this is why you live your life for Christ today. If you know that Christ will remember you, that Christ will know your name, then now is a time to live for Christ, to leave that kind of legacy behind that among other things that people might remember you, that people will remember that this person loved the Lord. It was in pursuit of the kingdom of Christ. Laid the life down to help and serve others because this person knew that Christ knew him or her. So if you would be wise, consider that your life is but a passing moment. Second, Wisdom welcomes rebuke. Verse 5 says, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. These pa this set of passages actually gives us a picture of the camp of fools. It tells us about the song of fools, the laughter of fools, 
and those who have been corrupted by foolery. These are those who are considered, according to the Scriptures, who live foolish lives. That is, that they do not live in the fear and the reverence of God. They do not live in the reality that it is rational, that it is logical, that it is sensible to believe in God and to give your life for Him. And so this passage warns us of the song of fools. The song of the foolish is intended to appease your conscience. The song of the foolish is intended to make you lie down in peace when perhaps you should be plagued with anxiety and shame, perhaps guilt over wrongdoing and sin. The song of the foolish is intended to mesmerize you into thinking that wrongdoing is actually right-doing. Essentially, the song of fools is intended to mask the truth. The laughter of the fool, on the other hand, rejoices in wrongdoing. It celebrates sin, is entertained by sin. It loves sin. You know how culture and society tries to turn your mind to accept the things that the Bible tells us not to accept? the things that the Bible considers sin and transgression, by getting you to laugh about them. If if the world can present abominable sins in a way that is lighthearted and in a comedic manner and gets you to laugh about it, then it will soften your heart towards it. And over time, as you continue to laugh about it, it will become much more acceptable to you. This passage also warns us about corruption into foolery, that even the wisest person, the most upstanding citizen, the most righteous person can even be corrupted himself. And it speaks here about oppression. I think the meaning here is actually intended to communicate sort of an an active oppression, that this person might be considered wise because of his pursuit and desire and love for money, something we talked about in the last sermon might be actually tempted to extort or oppress someone in order to gain more for himself. And in that sense, the person who was once wise is actually then corrupts himself and then comes to join the camp of fools. So if we would be wise, then we would avoid joining the camp of fools. And it tells us how do we do that. And that is to take, one way to do that is to take rebuke, to receive it, to take it, to be open to it, rebuke that is grounded in truth, truth that comes from his word, truth based on reality given to us in his word. Proverbs 15.31 tells us, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. There's an intelligence that only comes from receiving correction and reproof. But if you are unwilling to receive it, Proverbs tells us that you're actually doing damage to yourself. You're injuring yourself when you will not listen to reason and receive correction and rebuke. Rebuke and correction and reproof function as sort of these flashing lights in the middle of the night when you're driving to warn you that the bridge ahead is out, and if you continue moving forward, you're going to 
fall off the bridge and injure yourself. And so reproof and correction is intended to, is intended to be a means of grace in the life of the Christian to bring us back into reality if we've been sort of crossing the line into the illusions of the world. Every time that we meet on the Lord's Day, to come and to worship the Lord, to hear from His Word, these are intended to be reminders to us of precious truths and precious realities concerning Christ, concerning ourselves, concerning our eternal destiny. Especially if you say you've been distracted or asleep over the past week. This is intended to be flashing signs, sirens, to wake you up, to remember, hey, it's time to wake up and stop dreaming of the illusions of the world. And so some questions to ask yourself, if you would be wise, is do you welcome rebuke? Do those closest to you know that you welcome rebuke? If you'd be so daring, ask them. Ask your spouse, hey, do you think I actually welcome rebuke? You might be surprised by their answer. Would you welcome it? Rebuke, by the way, also means that you're in community. Right, because if you're never in community, if you're never engaging with God's people, then you're missing out on that particular means of grace. Because if you then decide to cross the line into accepting the illusions of the world and you're never around any other believers on a regular basis, there's not going to be anybody to call you back to the truth. So it does require you to be in Christian fellowship in community. Would you rebuke? Would you correct someone, a brother or sister, in a gentle and gracious and loving manner? The standard of the Bible is our only security. It's the standard of the Bible by which we go and lovingly rebuke others, and it's the way in which we should desire others to come and correct and rebuke us as well in order to keep us from joining the camp of fools. And is the only means by which we can sort of put a hedge of protection around ourselves so that we may not gradually walk into the camp of fools. So if you would be wise, welcome rebuke. Thirdly, wisdom is patient. Verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now, you might expect there to be a contrast between the patient in spirit and the impatient in spirit, but instead it says the proud in spirit, that is the prideful. It seems to teach us that impatience actually comes from a form of pride. I mean, why do we often get frustrated and angry and upset? Is it not sometimes that we care to admit that because we have unmet expectations, we have things that we expect, things we desire, things that we want, and we don't get what we want. We have this idealistic vision that isn't ever really reality. Right? I, expect my, I might expect that my three-year-old will be perfectly behaved, and then, and then I get upset when they don't behave. 
Well, that's an, that's an unrealistic expectation. And why do I have that expectation? Because I care about myself. Because I want easy. Pride is the exaltation of self above God. But when God doesn't operate according to our timetable and God doesn't give us what we want and God doesn't answer the prayers that we bring before him in the manner that we want them to be answered and the time that we want them to be answered, well, then we get impatient and then we do things out of impatience and then sin in our impatience and then when we come to realize, we come to our senses, we realize, I've been impatient. If only I had been patient, this would not have happened. A case in point is the story of Abraham and Sarah. They were promised a child, even in their old age, they were way past the childbearing age. The promise kept coming, but no deliverance yet until one day Sarah, in her impatience, invited also her husband to sin against her and against God also by telling, taking her servant, giving her to Abraham, have, have, give me children through her, and, that's, and in that way, ceasing on the promise of God in an impatient manner. Ever done that before? Done something, ceased on something because you we were impatient and unwilling to wait? But patience is the child of faith. Patience comes from trusting in the Lord with every detail of your life. Patience is certainly waiting, right? We wait, we continue to wait, and we continue to wait. And while we wait, patience is also trusting. It's an active waiting. We trust in the Lord. We trust that He is sovereign. We trust that He is good. We trust that He cares for every single detail of our lives. And patience is also to wait and to trust without grumbling and complaining. The proud, on the other hand, those who are arrogant, those who are boastful, want results and they want it immediately and they want it right now and when they don't get it, well, then they take matters into their own hands or they go somewhere else or they seek out somebody else rather than waiting patiently on the Lord. And as a Christian, patience is essential to the Christian life. You can't endure for very long as a Christian without being patient. It takes a great deal of patience to wait for God to answer prayers, to continue to ask and seek and knock and to plead and to wait for God to answer prayer. It takes a great deal of patience to suffer under the afflictions of the body, whether it's injury, whether it's terminal illness or disease as you wait for your glorified body that God has promised to us. It takes a great deal of patience to endure persecution as a Christian, waiting for Christ for one day for Christ's return and crush all of his enemies. It takes a great deal of patience to bear the weight of the hostility of the world, waiting for God's kingdom to come. This is why Jesus says that you must count the cost before following me because it takes a great deal of patience to follow the Lord Jesus. The Christian's life is certainly not for the impatient, but for those who commit to its sort of pilgrimage lifestyle and see it through until the very end 
when they receive the unfading crown of glory. So if you would be wise, be patient, learn patience, and if you would be daring, pray for patience. Fourthly, wisdom is slow to anger. Verse 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. There's an interesting choice of words in this passage. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges or abides or resides in the heart of fools. So in other words, we can become angry so quickly in a moment's notice. But the thing that insidious nature of anger is that it actually lodges in one's heart. It's like taking a thick block of wood and then taking a screw and trying to twist that screw into the block of wood. The deeper you go, the harder it gets. And the deeper that, that, that screw is driven into the block of wood, the harder it's going to be to get that thing out. That is the nature of anger. It lodges, it resides in our heart. And I'll tell you that it takes a great deal of time and patience and effort and a lot of prayer to get that anger out of your heart. But it's not impossible. And the wise will keep themselves from having a fool's heart that is quick to get angry. It's not that you never get angry. It's not condemning anger itself. I mean, God himself displays his anger and his wrath and fury, but it's because of his holiness, because of his perfection, because of his purity, and he cannot help but become angry and wrathful towards sin and wickedness and evil. Moses was angry when he came down from the mountain with the two tablets of God and saw the people of God worshiping a pagan image and committing sin with one another and against one another, and he threw those tablets on the ground and it crushed them and it broke them. And he was not condemned for his anger. Jesus himself became angry as well when he saw in the temple the tables and the money changers and exchangers and people selling things. And, the, and he came in the temple and right, and he, if you remember, he, he flipped those tables, took away and drove out all the animals. Why? Because he was angry. But Jesus did not commit sin in his anger. It wasn't a sinful anger. The anger that this passage warns about is a kind of flaring hasty anger that chases away a sanctified and holy character. So if you consider yourself an angry person or a person who is quick to get angry, then you must make every effort to rule over your anger and work hard at twisting the screw out of your heart. Because that Anger, this kind of hasty anger that chases away a holy and sanctified character that you have in Christ, is oppressive, it's weighty. It's like, it's like a bird that's taking flight. It sets its sights on the heavens, it wants to soar above the clouds, and it's flapping its wings, but then comes a strong wind that beats against the bird, and no matter how much it tries and resists the wind, it cannot reach as high as it wants to go, and it gets tired, and it gets exhausted, and it has nothing left to do but to go back to the ground and wait for the wind to die down. 
as the oppressive nature of anger. Proverbs 14.29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. We give ourselves to kind of this kind of, kind of this hasty, flaring anger that chases away a holy and sanctified character. It is a place of folly. Proverbs 15.18, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 16.32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. One way that I would suggest to you, if you consider yourself a person who is quick to get angry, if you consider yourself to be a person who has anger in his heart, is to consider studying the character of Jesus Christ. Jesus certainly in his lifetime had, there were many opportunities that could have lent himself to become, for him to become angry and chase away the holy and sanctified character that he had from the lack of understanding to the, of the disciples to the antagonism of the religious teachers and Pharisees to the countless people who kept coming after him for his gifts and not really for him and to know him to even the crowds that screamed for his crucifixion. All of these moments could have been moments that Jesus could have had this hasty, blazing anger, and he was never angry in any of those moments. So consider studying through one of the Gospels with an eye to anger and seeing how Jesus responded in moments when you and I would be angry. So if you would be wise, be slow to anger. Fifthly, wisdom lives in the present. Verse 10, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So this is a person who focuses too much on the past and misses out what's going on in the present. Because he lives in the past, he cannot enjoy God's good gifts in the present. And certainly we have reasons to complain today, just as any generation has reasons to complain, right? Inflation is high, there's scarcity of certain foods, and certain foods are super expensive, gas is high, and so it's easy for us to think, wow, remember the good old days when things were much better, when gas was cheaper, when grocery stores didn't have any of these things, it's basic essential things that are actually missing today. It's not that wisdom never considers the past. It's that wisdom is always focused so much on the present. There may be a lot of things that we wish we could change, that we wish would change, but the value of wisdom is that it does not focus on the things that the person cannot change, but it focuses on the things that can change. And what can change, what you can change, is your response to the times. And wisdom also considers the things that should never change, that you should never desire to change, such as to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That should never change. To love your labor of yourself, that should never change. To love your families, to work hard and well in your jobs, to teach your children, Essentially, what should never change and would be wise for us to consider is 
for us to continue to pursue the kingdom of Christ. That should never change. And the value of wisdom is that it focuses on that. That never changes, no matter how good or how bad the times are. Someone had once said, it is folly to cry out of the badness of the times when there is so much reason to complain of the badness of our hearts. We certainly have a tendency sometimes to complain of the things that are around us that we wish you could change and never consider the things in our own lives that should change. Perhaps the anger that's in our hearts, the sins that we struggle with, perhaps a lack of love for others, that is worthy of our consideration. And to consider those things would be wise. That's what it means to be in the present, to live in the present. And sixth and lastly, wisdom builds a fortress. Verse 12, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. There are certainly benefits to money. The wisdom here is to have money with wisdom. And money is helpful. Money is valuable. Right? We need money to put a roof over our heads and the head of our families. We need money to put food on the table. We need money in order to save and leave an inheritance to our children. that money provides a sort of hedge of protection to some degree, and wisdom as well provides a certain level of protection over one's life. And in that way, they're both sort of the same, but it does say that wisdom is advantages because there are certain things that money cannot buy. The value of wisdom as it tells us in other places in the Scriptures, but especially the Proverbs, is that wisdom, generally speaking, leads to longer life. It's not a promise, but if you give yourself to life of wisdom, living under the fear of God, to accepting God, to embracing God in Christ as your greatest treasure, and to living in the fear of God and following His commandments, that generally speaking, it leads to longer life, as opposed to the life of foolishness, the life that is absent from God, the life that is given to licentious living, to sinful living, to pursuing the sinful pleasures of this world. Not only that, but the value of wisdom that enhances the quality of your life. Your life is just so much better when you live it in wisdom, the wisdom that comes from the Scriptures. The value of wisdom is that it preserves the life of the one who embraces and treasures it, even unto eternal life. The Bible intends to persuade us to pursue the good life, and the good life, according to the Bible, is the life of wisdom. And the life of wisdom is the life that embraces Jesus Christ as their ultimate treasure. So if you would be wise, treasure Christ. Ask for more of Christ. Pursue more of Christ. This is the way to grow in more wisdom. Money can protect you from a lot of things, from poverty, from ruination, from hunger. 
but only the wisdom that comes from Christ can turn a man or woman of God into a mighty fortress that can repel the fiery arrows of the devil. Can help them endure the, under the hot furnace of affliction. Only the wisdom that comes from Christ can turn you into the kind of fortress that can withstand the battering, the, the, the battering rams, the temptations of the world. And the only way that we can fortify ourselves is by growing in more wisdom, pursuing more of Christ, treasuring Christ. Proverbs 4, 7 says, The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Get wisdom. Pursue wisdom. And scriptures actually also tell us that wisdom is personified. It is personified in the person of Jesus Christ. Just as God created the world through wisdom, it also tells us in the scriptures Jesus himself created the world. Jesus is the personification of the wisdom of God. That's why we should get wisdom and get more of Christ and pursue Christ and treasure Christ and treasure wisdom and pursue wisdom. Because the promise is, is that if you prize wisdom and prize Christ highly, then he will exalt you because Christ exalts the humble. And you will be honored if you embrace Christ. Just as it tells us, for example, in 1 Peter. And if you pursue Christ and embrace Christ, that you also be, it will be placed upon you this beautiful crown of righteousness. So there's the value of wisdom. So get wisdom, get insight, get understanding. This only comes from following Jesus Christ working against the anger of your heart, engaging yourself in Christian community, and open yourself to rebuke and be that kind of person for others. And consider the brevity of your life. And consider the kind of person, the kind of legacy you want to leave behind. Consider how you want to be remembered and have that kind of vision and start to live accordingly.